The loneliness one dare not sound and would as soon surmise, as in its grave go plumbing to ascertain the size. The loneliness whose worst alarm is lest itself should see and perish from before itself for just a scrutiny. The horror not to be surveyed but skirted in the dark with consciousness suspended and being under lock. I fear me this is loneliness, the maker of the soul, its caverns and its corridors, illuminate or seal. Hello and welcome to Loneliness and You, the podcast in which we hope to illuminate rather than seal the experience of loneliness and the question of whether it is indeed the maker of the soul. I'm your host, Axel Seaman. In each episode, I have a conversation with someone who has something to say about loneliness, from an academic, artistic, or indeed any other perspective. My guest today is Rick Anthony Feitak. Rick, could you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about who you are and what you do? Yes, and thank you for inviting me, Axel. So I have taught at Colorado College, ever since completing my PhD in philosophy at the University of Chicago. And my work basically occupies the overlap of three different areas, the philosophy of emotions, existential thought, and philosophy and literature. And all three are relevant to my newest book project, which we'll be talking somewhat about. And it engages with, above all, the legacy of Kierkegaard and Nietzsche as relevant to the work of Marcel Proust. Thank you very much. Before we get into your book project, I want to hear more, a little bit more about, you know, what you think about the Dickinson poem that we just heard. And there's a specific reason for that, because you co-wrote a paper with Ruth Tietjen um, on loneliness. And in this um, paper, you make repeated references to poetry. And one of the poets your reference is Emily Dickinson, even though it's a different poem um, you are referring to. So I'm very curious to hear what you have to tell us about this poem that we heard, um, how it strikes you, what it tells us about loneliness, what it is. Tell us more. Yes, in that paper that Ruth and I wrote, we cite another Dickinson poem that begins, the lonesome for they know not what. And I'd like to take up that idea that we can be lonesome for something or someone in particular. The loneliness one dare not sound addresses uh, loneliness as a kind of unspeakable terror that one is afraid to look into or talk about. It's very much a theme of Proust's fiction, although it's seldom named as such, the solitude of the narrator whose mind we share as readers of Proust. I'm particularly struck by the line where Dickinson describes loneliness as the maker of the soul. And some of what I'd like to talk about has to do with the way that we are defined in our idiosyncratic identity by that for which we are lonely. Thank you. Tell us a little bit more about, so, you know, the idea that, you know, loneliness is, is not just about, well, the absence of other people, loneliness for something that, that constitutes or helps constitutes our identity. What is the object of that loneliness? Um, 
you know, I, I looking a little bit at, at your work, um, I suspect that it has to do with the loved person. Is that right? Tell us a little bit, about, a bit more about that. Yeah, that's exactly right. So loneliness within intimate relationships, and in particular romantic relationships, is the type of loneliness that I speak about most in this project that connects with Proust. And so turning from poetry to literary fiction, if I could mention briefly an example from another philosophical novelist, Milan Kundera, from his masterpiece, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, there's a discussion of what he, as omniscient narrator, describes as words misunderstood. And it has to do with the emotional connotations of terms, concepts, or places, such as an old church that's entered by two characters who have completely different responses emotionally to the church interior, neither of which has very much to do with religion, but both of which has have to do with their subjectivity, their whole orientation toward the world, so that this church, which was stripped bare of all of its art and statuary, uh, when Calvinism arose, this is an old Gothic church predating Calvinism, uh, the empty interior of the church signifies to Sabina the absence of beauty from the world that has to be, that is, beauty has to be hidden and uh, kept secret. And this makes her sad, the lack of ornament in the church, whereas for Franz, uh, who's having an affair with Sabina and who enters the church with her on this occasion, it signifies liberation and the kind of freedom that he hopes is symbolic of his life going forward. So they misunderstand each other. And I would like to look at what is going on in this failure to connect with the mind of the beloved as very much a form of loneliness, although it's not named as such there any more than it is named as such by Proust. Yeah, thank you. So the connection with the mind of the beloved, which is is of course an emotional connection. Um, but if I've if I've heard you correctly, you know, I might not have heard you correctly, it's not just an emotional connection, right? Because after all, um the 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 emotional connotation um attaches to real things like this church, right? Um so if you know if we're referring that back to you know the the object um, that the suffering person is lonely for. It, does that give us a picture where, well, you know, sort of um, what is being absent, what the person is lonely for, is the other person, the emotionally connected other person, but there's a whole world that goes along with it, and that makes it makes it so all encompassing. Am I on the right track, or am I misconstruing what you're saying? Absolutely. Um, when we love someone. We want to gain access to their world. And this is very much true in Proust's novel, in the second of seven volumes, when he first meets Albertine, who will become his girlfriend. It's a famous scene that occupies about 11 pages of narrative, where she's walking with her friends along the shore. And part of why he singles her out is that she is the first of them to actually return his gaze. And if I could read just a couple of sentences from this passage. He says that when he catches her gaze, he sees an inaccessible, unknown world. And he asks himself, if she had seen me, 
What could I have represented to her? From the depths of what universe did she discern me? If we thought that the eyes of such a girl were merely two glittering sequins of mica, we should not be athirst to know her. So the beloved for Proust, and I think this is true of our experience in general, at least it, it speaks to me, um, the mind of the beloved is what we long to know. If this were not another person with a whole perspective on the world, then that longing wouldn't be what it is. But this is not something we can ever fully and transparently gain access to. Yeah, so two things I want to pick up on. Um, first of all, what you've just said, um, the presence, but nevertheless, you know, never fully achieved disclosure of the other person, right? In any sort of relationship, of course, but, you know, particularly in love. And then I want to, well, let's perhaps stick to that and then, you know, we'll talk about the other thing. Um, so tell us a little bit more about that. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's of course, true that, you know, pretty much nothing um, is disclosed to us, you know, really fully ever. Physical objects um, are only disclosed to us from a particular perspective. And there's always more to the object than, you know, our perspective um, would allow. And, you know, you could sort of think um, that something similar is true um, in, in human relationships where, yes, you know, there's a connection with um, the mind of the other, but of course you only see an aspect of it. And yet, question for you, in the moment of, in the experience of love, of course, you feel that the other person's fully there. No, is that, you know, where does that lead us? Um, does that lead us to, to, to the packet passage that you've just talked about? Okay, yes. I think we receive glimpses and we have moments when we feel that this other person is disclosed to us, is present to us, and so forth. Uh, and I think that the official theory of Proust's narrator is much more pessimistic than his narrative as a whole really is about the prospect of knowing another mind. He's even been called by philosophers writing about his novel, a solipsist who, uh, for whom, at least for, for his narrator, the mind of the other is hopelessly inaccessible to us. I think we can partially succeed. And the promise of love is in large part getting better acquainted with this other mind, this person for whom a whole world exists, uh, a sensibility that is not our own. And yet this is part of what's tragic about it. Um, we long for something that we will never completely possess, uh, the totality of the other person. And yet, if it were somehow available to us, that would be the end of love, because there would be nothing more to discover and come to appreciate about the person. Yeah, thank you. Further questions still, you know, to do um, with, with the quote that you just gave us. Recognition seems to be such an important part of this, right? So, you know, sort of the eyes of the beloved, um, you know, sort of look back at the narrator and and that's of course and and she sees him right she sees him and that's of course you know incredibly important in 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 love or you know i take it any meaningful relationship so it's not just you know it's not just that you know you are connected to the other person it's a communicative reciprocal process uh, yeah how does that connect to what you've just told us how does that hang together well you notice that he mentions the idea of him in her mind 
And so we have a longing to be known and to disclose ourselves just as much as we long to know the beloved. And so you could say there are two aspects to this loneliness within an intimate relationship. There's the solitude of our own that we want to share. And there's also the other person in their inwardness, their solitude, their subjectivity that we want to get to know better. And we are troubled by the difference between us, even though we really wouldn't want it any other way. Um, we know our own mind all too well. And that's not to say we have it all transparently available to us. I mean, we might long to be known by the person who loves us in ways that will bring to light aspects of ourselves that we hadn't seen. But if another mind were not different from our own, then well, the whole human world would be completely different from what it is. We wouldn't have distinctive individuality. And yet we do. But it yeah. bothers us. <laughs> it bothers us indeed. Yes. Um, so like you know, so in, in, in preparation for our conversations today, you gave me um two two quotations from, from Proust. And um the the, the second one um, of those, uh, you know, perhaps you'd like to read it in a bit, um gets us um gets us to to the next question that that I have. So if you know, you, you said just just a minute ago that you know um, some accuse Proust of uh, being a solipsist. Um, you don't seem that you know. So it's always you're always stuck in your own mind, and you never really get at the other. You don't seem to share this very pessimistic view. But if only ever capturing an aspect of the other person reciprocally is such a big part of it, what is it that happens, according to Proust, or according to you, when we do in fact connect? What is that connection? Does Proust give us any answer to that? Well, his narrator's official word is that we really are trapped in our subjectivity. But he is trying to formulate universal theories out of his own peculiar experience. And some of his conclusions apply only to people that are like him in the relevant respect. So for instance, he's a very possessive lover He's a very jealous lover, and he wonders if his point of view on the beloved is tainted by what, in particular, he's obsessively trying to know about her. But what makes her lovable in his eyes is the unknown. If she were more like him, as another of her friends, in fact, is, uh, in temperament and sensibility, he wouldn't be drawn to this unknown world that he glimpses. One of the things he wonders about in relation to Albertine is whether she has love affairs with some of her women friends. And that in particular torments him more than the thought of the male rival for her attention, because woman to woman, romantic love is a whole world experientially that he has no access to. And so it's what he knows that he cannot know about her experience that he most longs to know. And that has something to do 
with his pessimistic conclusions. And I think, well, yes, uh, if you are, as Proust's narrator is, a heterosexual male, then lesbian love is not going to be something you have any direct experience of. And that that is part of perhaps the tragedy of separateness. Yeah. Thank you for sticking to that to that theme. You know what what is connection and what is you know what is what is the connection that um, uh, we long for um, that you know you might think uh, constitutes love. So I'll I'll read if if I may the second you know the the the, the quotation that um, you gave us. Would you want to read it? No, please, Axel, okay. go ahead. Okay, so you know, sort of, he he tells us, and I, I I was just fascinated with that. The only true voyage of discovery, the only really rejuvenating experience, would be not to visit strange lands, but to possess other eyes, to see the universe through the eyes of another, of a hundred others, to see the hundred universes that each of them sees, that each of them is, that ineffable something which differentiates qualitatively what each of us has felt. I thought about that. I puzzled over it. Make that clear to make clearer to us. What, what's the ineffable others? What, what's he telling us here? Yes, well, we have presented to us here in this passage a vivid account of how each person is essentially a loving subject with a point of view on the world that's different from our own. And I think the partial connections that we can have with our friends, with our lovers, with our family members, whoever it might be that we're in an intimate relationship with, this gets exemplified by things like being introduced to an author or to a kind of music that we ourselves hadn't yet discovered. And coming to share an appreciation with our friend, with our beloved, of that kind of music to which they introduced us. Although I think something beautiful happens when we don't come to share it, but we come to appreciate it from the outside, as it were. And we know, or we think we know something about why they love this music. Even if we don't share the love, in a way, that's a more significant kind of connection that uh, we don't just enlarge our own world in ways that make us more similar to them, but we come to appreciate their world despite its foreignness to us. Yeah, right, right. Uh, so, okay, so so significant human connection has something to do, is a form of, of, of perspective taking and thereby not so much discovering, as, as Proust says, strange lands, but what is already there. So let's take this and 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 try to connect it back to to loneliness. You know, you told us a little while ago that you know you found important this this locution, um, loneliness for where you know um, what you you're lonely for is the loved person, and now we have a somewhat fuller picture of who the loved person is. It's the one through whose eyes we 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 long to see the world perhaps yeah and so what's then loneliness i mean is that if if that's not there simply or is there a fuller picture here how do you how do you continue that yes well i think personally that we are at best partially successful in knowing another mind and uh that part of why i don't share the experience of many readers of 
the Proust that they simply don't like being within the mind of this narrator. Um, I agree that he can be quite infuriating, but I share the sense that we long to know the beloved more fully than we ever really can. And although I don't share his despair that we could ever gain access in part to another mind, which at many points he expresses in terms that can make him sound like a solipsist. So in his case, and as I said a little bit ago, uh, this is part of what distinguishes him. He knows that he's very possessive and controlling and that this taints his perspective on the beloved. But if he were indifferent, then he wouldn't have any interest in knowing the mind of the beloved. And that's part of, for him, the paradox of love and loneliness, namely that we are inevitably within our own minds and have to take that approach as the premise of any encounter with another person. Yet uh, the defining features of our emotional orientation to them might uh, get in the way of exactly what we're trying to gain access to, exactly what we long to know. And that's particularly true if we are jealous and possessive. Uh, the paradox is that we both um, want to know because we love, and at the same time, we might worry that the point of view of a loving subject inherently distorts what we're what we're loving. It, it distorts the other person because it is influenced by what we hope for from them. And this, I think, is true of us in general, but it's more emphatically true of a character such as his narrator. Mm -hmm. So this gives us, you know, quite a different view of what loneliness is than what we encounter in, you know, much of um, the contemporary, in particular, psychological literature um, or empirical literature in any case, where loneliness, you know, is a, is a, is a marker, is a signal of a deficiency of something you know that we want but don't have um and once we get it you know let it be broadly meaningful social connections whatever that is once we have it then the loneliness goes away right um and so the picture that you're painting if i understand it correctly is a very is a very different one um in that even when we're loving and even if it's not, you know, a total case of unrequited love, loneliness, being lonely, is almost a condition of being able to love in this way. Because, you know, you're longing for this full connection, full um, ability to take over the other's perspective, which isn't going to be forthcoming. Yes, exactly. I'm not tormented by my failure to know the subjectivity of a random stranger on the street because I don't especially love that person. I mean, in an abstract way, I might think it would be beautiful to know how they see the world, where they're coming from, but that's a different kind of separation from another person than the separation we have towards someone that we love because there we have a much greater motivation to know how the world seems to them. And for that reason, there's a kind of loneliness that we can only feel most acutely within an intimate relationship. 
Yeah, right. And that connects us back to to what you said, you know, at the beginning of our conversation about the, the Dickinson poem, um, loneliness as the maker of the soul. You, you, you take it or you think that that's, that might be what Dickinson is talking about, or could be construed, could be read as, as talking about there. Um, so, um, you know, the the important part of of human identity that is constituted by the connection with others that even when things go well you know it's never quite fulfilled and make you feel separation as well as togetherness right yes that's right um so love can partially alleviate our loneliness but because a partially successful endeavor to know the mind of another is also at the same time a partial failure there is this remaining loneliness and this tragedy as i've put it that we also encounter at the same time yeah fantastic yeah let's move on slightly in uh, the few minutes um that that we've got left in the paper that you co-write with with ruth um you say somewhere something like that um the the writing of of, of poetry can be seen as a um the expression of the wish for connection i'm not totally sure i'm getting this entirely i'm getting this entirely right but it's it, it's sort of something like that you know that you're saying and i i want you to i wanted to ask you to elaborate on this a little bit so on the on the role of you know um doing poetry itself in the context in which we've been talking about and you know i want to ask you that not just as a, a philosopher but also as somebody who themselves you you write poetry right yes. so so yeah tell us a little bit about that well i think um there's a lot to be said for what's going on in writing and reading poetry, but clearly as it pertains to our theme, one of the main features of, of composing poetry is that it is taking something that's quite intimately personal, and to use a term that you brought up, it is putting that into a space where one hopes for recognition, where what that personal matter is, is being shared in hopes of acknowledgement. And that can be described as a longing to be loved. That that uh, even fairly formal and reticent poets have spoken of poetry as an appeal for love. And that when I appreciate a poem by Dickinson, I'll you know, who herself was a very lonely person, although, you know, did have intimate relationships in her life. I'm being, uh, it, it is if across this distance of time and space within language, something of another person's subjectivity is speaking to me. And that's the beautiful kind of connection that we can make through poetry. Yeah. <laughs> and since you are, you know, this this rare beast, you are you are a philosopher who also writes poetry or the other way around. How is that related to doing philosophy? Now, you know, also in this in this paper that um with, with Ruth, um the the two of you, you know, talk a little bit about the loneliness of the of the philosopher and uh, you write co-write this this paper. And uh, so, you know, uh, perhaps that's a different way of of of, of doing um philosophy. Uh, so yeah, what what's the relation, difference, or perhaps also commonality between writing poetry and you know what 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 that aspires to, um, what you've just talked about and, and doing philosophy. 
I think poetry is almost hard for me to talk about because it can be so overwhelming to me. And uh, my identity as someone who makes his livelihood through philosophy and writes many more pages of philosophy than of poetry, um, that identity fits me partly because of how much poetry means and how intimately it, how intimately personal it is. So uh, philosophy is a less awkwardly personal way of making sense of experience and trying to connect with others. Yeah, like, you know, in dark, so, you know, you, you might think that, you know, so you described um, poetry as an expression of subjectivity and, you know, the peculiar and intimate connection um, that comes with that. And at least, you know, some philosophers would say that, um, well, philosophy appeals to objectivity, right? It is, you know, in, in, in this sense, like a natural science, it, you know, aims to say something um, that isn't, even though it's, of course, you know, from made from said from a particular perspective, but it is, it has some sort of truth that can sort of objectively, you know, um, be reconstructed or recognized by another person. Is that, would you agree? Would you go along with that? And so, you know, sort of then when there's a connection through through philosophy, then yeah, if it's, then it's like, you know, the connection that a natural scientist might have when, you know, they've got a hypothesis and, you know, that hypothesis is then, you know, confirmed or whatever, whatever your theory is of how that, how that works. And so then, you know, if somebody says, yes, I see this, you know, I think this is a good philosophical argument. I think that's true. Then it's just that sort of, a, of connection. Would you go along with that? Or um, would you, would you not think that? Would you not have? this sort of objectivist picture of philosophy? Well, I do reject that picture. My polemical existential self would simply say philosophy is not like science and it shouldn't aspire toward impersonal objectivity. I think a more balanced answer, though, is that there is something to be said for that aspect of philosophy, that it aims at something that is not only my own, but that can be shared and agreed upon. And in that sense, at least of being intersubjective, it, it aspires toward objectivity. Iris Murdoch, the significantly novelist and philosopher, says at one point that to do philosophy is to discover one's own temperament and at the same time to search for the truth. And she means a truth that's not peculiar to one's own temperament. I think both of those aspects are important. And yet it's only uh, from within a certain sensibility that we can aspire toward a truth that can be shared or agreed upon with others. And even the extent to which that agreement will come, if we say something that resonates with someone else, if we persuade them of a certain way of seeing, that depends on, as we say, where they're coming from at the same time. And so the, uh, the subjective and personal element is always there. And it seems to me that this is a wonderful moment to end the conversation on. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to have you. Um, I learned an awful lot today. Well, you're welcome. And thank you again for the invitation. My guest today was Rick Anthony Furtak. Rick is an associate professor of philosophy at Colorado College. His new book, Love, Subjectivity and Truth, is just published with Oxford University Press. Thanks for listening to Loneliness and You, a podcast on the research and experience of loneliness.